The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. September 10th, 2020. In the course of the last six months, everywhere in the civilized world has accepted the principle that hitherto perfectly normal activities, getting a haircut, getting a cheeseburger, getting out of your house into the street, now take place only with the permission of an all-powerful government. In After America, I quoted Alexis de Tocqueville from his great work, Democracy in America, on where society might wind up if democracy went awry. Uh, Over everything says Tocqueville, is elevated an immense tutelary power which takes sole charge of assuring uh, the citizens' enjoyment and of watching over their fate. It is absolute, attentive to detail, regular, provident and gentle. It would resemble the paternal power if, like that power, it had as its object to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, to the contrary to keep them irrevocably fixed in childhood. The sovereign extends its arms about the society as a whole. It covers its surface with a network of petty regulations, complicated, minute and uniform, through which even the most original minds and the most vigorous souls know not how to make their way. It does not break wills, it softens them, bends them and directs them. Rarely does it force one to act, but it constantly opposes itself to one's acting on one's own. It does not tyrannise, it gets in the way, it curtails, It enervates, it extinguishes, it stupefies, and finally reduces each nation to being nothing more than a herd of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd. Sound familiar? Look at any downtown around the Western world today. Sometimes we like to make comparisons with uh, medieval tyrants. But actually, those comparisons do an injustice uh, to medieval tyrants. Also from Alexis de Tocqueville, there was a time in Europe in which the law, as well as the consent of the people, clothed kings with a power almost without limits. But almost never did it happen that they made use of it, unquote. That's true. His Majesty was an absolute tyrant in theory. But in practice, he was in his palace hundreds of miles away, uh, and a pantalooned emissary might come prancing into your dooryard once every half decade and give you a hard time. But for the most part, you got on with your life relatively undisturbed. In Tocqueville's words, although the entire government of the empire was concentrated in the hands of the emperor alone, and although he remained in time of need the arbiter of all things, the details of social life and of individual existence ordinarily escaped his control. Just so. You were the mean and worthless subject of a cruel and mercurial despot, but even if he wanted to, he lacked the means to micro-regulate your life in every aspect. What would happen, Tocqueville wondered, 
if administrative capability were to evolve to make it possible, quote, to subject all of his subjects to the details of a uniform set of regulations. That moment arrived in March, and it's not going away, and it has less and less to do with public health. It is a uniform set of regulations, but it does not fall uniformly. For example, from Australia. There are calls for the Queensland government to review its coronavirus ban on dancing at weddings, given that sex parties are still allowed. Dominic Cansdale reports. Swingers clubs or sex parties are allowed to operate under an approved COVID-safe industry plan, but dancing remains off-limits for guests at weddings. Musician Nick Edser says the rule means he can't dance with his wife while he's performing. But if we decide to go to a sex club and swap partners with some people who we don't know where they're from or who they really are, that's okay. Mr Edser has called for the ban to be lifted to help rebuild the hard-hit wedding industry. But Queensland Health says the restrictions balance community safety while keeping life as normal as possible. That's not a joke. If you're invited to your old-school chums, Mabel and Tarquin's wedding in Queensland, you cannot dance at that wedding. You cannot dance to the way you look tonight or the very thought of you or whatever hideous Ed Sheeran caterwauling they've picked instead. But if at the end of the night you're thinking, God, what a bloody miserable wedding that was, darling, completely joyless, let's go to the Swingers Club and have government-approved anonymous sex with strangers, uh, it's completely co- COVID compliant in Queensland, we are all Jerry Falwell Jr. now, sitting in the corner, watching the missus get Roger's senseless because you are forbidden from waltzing with her. If that's what you want to do at the end of the wedding, go for it, because Queensland licenses that. Queensland licenses anonymous swingers' sex in public sex clubs, but it does not license waltzing tangoing the Paso Doble. Now, the gentleman pointing out this absurd, capricious, tyrannical inconsistency on that ABC News bulletin, um, the Fran Kelly Breakfast Show, on which I've appeared a couple of times a decade or so. <laughs> Fran never warms to me. Um, the, uh, the gentleman there, Nick Edser, is a wedding singer, so his business has been clobbered by the last six months, and he frames the argument in economic terms, because if you have a big wedding, it's a big economic boost for caterers, for dressmakers, for musicians. Uh, and I understand that that's because, in some ways, the only argument we're allowed to make now, oh, please, 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 Mr. Government, please, please, Please let me go to work because my work is uh, essential for, quote unquote, the economy. Well, if they cared about the economy, none of this would be happening. It's more basic than that. Um, the objection is more basic than that. Once you accept the principle that the state has sole jurisdiction over whether or not you can dance, you know, whether dancing is legal because we're in Taliban territory, we're in Saudi Arabian territory now. Once you accept that the state has sole jurisdiction over whether or not you can dance, there is no power that the state does not have. And like all tyranny, COVID tyranny is capricious. There's no principle behind it, but there are certain uh, 
patterns of behaviour that can be discerned. You can't open your hair salon, but Black Lives Matter can burn it down. Uh, likewise, uh, normal ancient bourgeois social rituals are forbidden, but sad nihilist activities that contribute to social disintegration and atomization are fine. Uh, if you follow our 100 Years Ago show, you'll know that in the 1920 US election, Warren Harding campaigned on the theme of a return to normalcy. Well, normalcy was suspended for two weeks in March, and in the six months since, governments have been telling us there will be no return to it. Meanwhile, the people who gave this disease to the world, Chairman Xi and his fellow liars on the Chinese Politburo, are getting off scot-free. And our sole uh, substantive response to CHICOM 19 has been to adopt Chinese mores. Beijing uh, gave us the disease, and it's now given us Chinese standard freedom of movement and Chinese standard freedom of speech. We have seen a complete inversion of the basic organizing principle of free societies. Here's me uh, four and a half years ago down under on the ABC with Tom Switzer on his show Between the Lines. The role of a judge is to decide what parts of life you have to have rules against, the tiny part of life you have to have rules for, and in a healthy society, the 80% in the middle that, as Lord Moulton, the great English jurist, always used to say, is part of the realm of manners. Mm -hmm. In America, increasingly, everything is illegal, and without knowing it, you break 300 rules every day. And, mm. you know, Australia is a little way behind that, and New Zealand and Britain and Canada. But actually, that realm of manners, that 80% in the middle that is self-regulated, that's the definition of a free society. Mm. And then the minute the 80% becomes 60%, 30%, 20%. You can't do it with rules. Mm. A lot of this is about social relations and should be left to the people to mediate among themselves. Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on Between the Lines. Thanks a lot, Tom. That was Mark Stein. That was me four and a half years ago. Lord Moulton was right, as we should see very clearly today after the last six months. The realm of manners has now been entirely abolished around the West. Everything now is mandatory or forbidden. Wear a mask. That's mandatory. But even with a mask, don't dance. That's forbidden. And this new binary world is on a scale that, as Tocqueville correctly noted, uh, ever more regulated and policed by the state ever more micro-regulated in every respect of human existence. And so, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Chairman Dan's constabulary in the Aussie state of Victoria uh, has been giving the original Brit Wanker Cops a ferocious run for their money in recent weeks. But with this incident, the British Transport Police have got their mojo back. The scene, a commuter train, a Mersey Rail service in the Wirral heading to the big terminus Lime Street Station in Liverpool. The passenger is Anthony Baldwin, 34, of Little Sutton. 
He is not wearing a mask and is accused of coughing. The British transport policeman is in his face, but Mr Baldwin tells him he has a medical exemption. This is permitted by the benevolent commissars of the British state. You can download an exemption permit from your computer, but you do not have to. Uh, you do not have to have it with you, and the state cannot compel its production. To quote the official government guidance, those who have an age, health or disability reason for not wearing a face covering should not be routinely asked to give any written evidence. That's fair enough. A lot of medical conditions are not the kind you'd want to disclose in public to a full railway carriage, nor should you have to. Nonetheless, that's what the police officer demands, evidence that Mr Baldwin is allowed not to wear a mask. The copper's exceeding his powers in this, and then he starts, well, scuffling, tussling with the citizen on a narrow commuter train. Now, obviously, in America, such a situation wouldn't arise um, because these incidents don't go on long before the policeman's superior firepower is brought to bear on the situation. But this copper doesn't have that kind of firepower. He's just a flabby, ill-trained, third-rate Jobsworth who's tussling with Mr Baldwin isn't going that well. His own mask is off by now, so uh, by his own standards, he's endangering other passengers. And he calls for assistance and then reaches for his pepper spray. So he's now pepper spraying a man who says he has a medical condition. Uh, but he's on a narrow commuter train and he's not a very competent pepper sprayer. So the pepper is flying wide toward the guy opposite Mr Baldwin, uh, the people behind him. And in the tussling, the officer is grabbing onto whatever bits of Mr Baldwin he can get a hold of and winds up pulling his shirt off. So morning commuters in the Wirral are now looking at this police officer pepper spraying and disrobing a man who claims to have a medical condition. By now, uh, the three colleagues are on the scene, not all masked themselves. Uh, so by their own standards, they're also endangering the public. But they do succeed eventually in hustling Anthony Baldwin off the train. What happened is in breach of the government's own, quote, guidelines, a weasel word operating somewhere between the due process of law and arbitrary authority. But the wanker copper and his marginally less wanker associates did this because Mr. Baldwin was not wearing a mask and therefore posed a health threat. 
Whereas coppers not wearing masks, coppers getting up close and personal and sweaty and out of breath and firing off pepper spray in a small contained space, causing other people to cough and splutter and thus uh, project COVID particles into the air. None of that is a health threat. I know what you're saying. The Brit wanker coppers are new at this. They're not yet as efficient as the Chai Coms or Kim Jong-un or the Mutoween. They're incompetent tyrants. But give them another six months and they'll be better at it. That seems to be the forgiving attitude of almost all the other passengers who looked away and down upon their mobiles. According to a new YouGov poll, 62% of people in the United Kingdom would support a curfew from 10pm to 5am every night to prevent a so-called second wave of coronavirus. 62% in favour of a nightly curfew. I haven't checked, but presumably the other 38% are even more responsible and are demanding a 24-7 curfew. Nevertheless, on this Mersey Rail train service, the only persons endangering anyone in this deranged vignette of Mother England, crucible of liberty in its twilight, were the constabulary, your Brit wanker coppers of the day, the British Transport Police. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to steinonline.com club for details. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Yet another new nation, a prince on the lamb and a horse on the tracks. It's September 1920. A hundred years from today. Your World News update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The city of Fiume was intended to be part of the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. Instead, a year after leading Italian forces into the city, the acclaimed poet Gabriel D'Annunzio has declared Fiume to be an independent state to be known as the Italian Regency of Carnaro. Soviet Russia has recognised the independence and sovereignty of the Latvian state and, quote, forever renounces all sovereign rights held by Russia in relation to the Latvian nation and land. Elsewhere in Europe, Belgium has ended its policy of neutrality and ratified its military alliance with France. After just a week on the run, Prince Abdul Mejid, the eminent painter and heir apparent to the throne of the Ottoman Empire, has been captured and had his property confiscated. The cousin of the Sultan, Mehmed VI, Abdul Mejid, had been under house arrest at the Dolma Bajay Palace. House arrest is 
not too onerous for Ottoman princes since they are by tradition confined to the palace until they are 40 years old. Nevertheless, Abdul Majid was arrested while attempting to flee from Constantinople to Ankara. One hundred and sixty-four years after its abolition by the Ottoman Empire, the Serbian Orthodox Church has been restored and unified under the leadership of the Metropolitan of Belgrade, Dmitrije Pavlovic. Every mother will listen, every Irish heart will know that we've realized our dreams of long ago. You can pull the cork out of Erin, but can you pull the Lord Mayor of Cork out of the military prison in Queenstown? In an effort to put the cork back in the Irish bottle, the authorities released eight prisoners from jail and sent them home to Cork, but chose not to release any of those Republicans who are on hunger strike, including the Lord Mayor Terence McSweeney. The Viceroy of India, Lord Chelmsford, has appointed the former Parliamentary Private Secretary to Winston Churchill, A.F. White, the first president of the new Central Legislative Assembly, the lower house of the Imperial Legislative Council of India. In the United States, President Woodrow Wilson has been seen to walk out of the White House and to his automobile without assistance for the first time in almost a year since he fell ill last October. With the crowd watching from Pennsylvania Avenue, the president kept his balance with a cane and, quote, walked briskly to the car before stepping into it. Regular airmail service has been launched between the east and west coasts of the United States as the first sacks of letters departed the airfield in Maywood, New Jersey, bound for Marino Field in San Francisco in one of the post office's fleet of six Junkers JR-1B metal airplanes, this one piloted by Edison Montemutum. Under this new service, a letter leaving New York City at daybreak for Omaha, Nebraska will arrive the same day before sunset, and mail leaving New York on Monday morning will arrive in San Francisco by 9 a.m. on Wednesday. The strike by the Union of Film Musicians, they're the people who play live music in the cinema as the motion picture flickers above them, has been settled. The movie theatre owners agreed to demands for a 40% wage increase but rejected a reduction in the workday from six hours to five.
The Chicago Daily Tribune effused that the touching adagio of hearts and flowers in the more bourgeois place or the heart-splintering beams of Mr. Beethoven's moonlight in the emporiums which cater to the more altitudinarian foreheads will stifle the sobs of those unduly affected by the woes of miscelluloid abused. September is proving an incendiary month. An explosion on the Japanese battlecruiser Haruna has killed seven sailors and injured eight more. Fifty people in Peru were killed when two barges collided in Calao Bay. Both vessels were carrying dynamite. And an earthquake in Italy has killed and injured hundreds of people and destroyed three towns in Tuscany. The uncle of Democrat vice presidential candidate Franklin Roosevelt has been killed in a freak accident. Mr. Warren Delano, one of the biggest owners of Pennsylvania coal mines and an accomplished horseman and breeder, was driving his favorite horse, which he was intending to enter in the harness class of the Duchess County Fair. At Barrytown Station, the horse, Bell, was frightened by the sound of the approaching New York Central Railroad Express and bolted onto the tracks, taking Mr. Delano in the buggy with her. The train hit the wagon head-on and carried it 150 feet down the track before it fell to the side. Bell was borne another thousand feet and was shredded to pieces. Mr. Delano was discovered sitting in the buggy, apparently unharmed, but upon removal to the station, was pronounced dead of a broken neck. He was 68. It's only four months since Olive Thomas introduced America to the flapper. That was the name of the hit picture in which her star performance helped popularise a new word and a new lifestyle. Miss Thomas was previously the winner of the most beautiful girl in New York competition, the first girl to be painted by the celebrated artist of feminine pulchritude, Alberto Vargas, and the star of the Ziegfeld Follies, eagerly pursued by the German ambassador and other stage door Johnnies, but whose hand was won by Jack Pickford, movie star and younger brother of America's sweetheart, Mary Pickford. Miss Thomas and Mr. Pickford were in Paris, and after a night on the tiles in Montparnasse, returned to the Ritz at about three in the morning. Mr. Pickford fell asleep and woke to his wife's screams. Miss Thomas had apparently accidentally drunk from a bottle of bichloride of mercury. Why such a bottle would be in their hotel room is a mystery, but it has been reported to have been prescribed to treat Mr. Pickford's chronic syphilis. He called a doctor, they pumped her stomach, and then they took her to the American hospital at Nui, where she died five days later. Olive Thomas was 25. Her final film, Everybody's Sweetheart, will be released next month. And that's the way of the world, September 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. 
Actually, this music also means our Clubland Q&A, which returns live around the planet tomorrow, uh, Friday afternoon uh, in North America, uh, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, 9 p.m. British Summertime, 10 p.m. in Western Europe. You have to work it out from there. Um, So while I'm resting up training for incisive live questioning for 60 minutes, uh, let me tidy up a bit of unfinished business here. Last week, I was so busy making a meal of pronouncing Daphna Brine's last name that I wound up mispronouncing her first name. I thought it was a melange of uh, Daphne and Dymphna, but in fact, uh, Daphna writes to say it's pronounced Daphna. Uh, Like Bach, she adds, but that's a whole other thing, as I used to say on my classical radio show, Bach after the break. Uh, Daphna adds, since there's been all this talk about present tense culture with no past and no future, both of my maternal grandparents were Holocaust survivors from Poland. My grandmother's maiden name was Daphna. Uh, This is a really sad story, uh, Daphna relates, because after the war, there were no male survivors in the Daphne line. Uh, That's how thorough a job the Third Reich did. Uh, Just three sisters. So Daphne was so named in order that a name that had been extinguished should endure at least in some form. I hope I've said it right, Daphne, and I hope it endures for many years to come. Steinclubber Josh Passel Uh, writes, re my solicitation of appropriately Antipodean theme music for our Wanker Copper spot. An easy fix to the handover of the Wanker Copper from Pom to Aussie would be to swap in the word wankers to the theme song to Neighbours. Uh, A few more alterations and problems solved. Neighbours is the blockbuster Australian soap opera that for uh, 35 years has been hugely popular and not just in Oz, but in the UK, uh, New Zealand, all over the Commonwealth, all together now. Neighbours, everybody needs good neighbours With a little understanding You can find the perfect blend Neighbours should be there for one another that's when good neighbors become good friends. So Josh wants us to do wankers. Everybody loves us wankers. Uh, my problem here is that the great Tony Hatch, who wrote Downtown and Don't Sleep in the Subway and on and on, uh, Tony wrote the theme to Neighbours, and in the 90s, he and I were on... A truly terrible BBC show. One of the worst I've ever made the mistake of going on, as did he. It was just hopelessly miscast, so everybody grated on each other. And one of the other guests was a talentless tosspot demonstrating... Uh, preposterously, when you're sitting opposite Tony Hatch, how to write a theme song uh, by producing on his synthesizer what sounded like a man howling the safe word in vain in a bondage dungeon where everyone else has gone home for the weekend. And it was hideous, hideous cacophony. And the guy was just so far up his own posterior um, 
And so I said uh, Tony had written a truly excellent theme song for Neighbours because it accurately captures the spirit of the show. And uh, Tony was was genuinely touched by that. Um, So I would feel bad if I were now to go around bellowing, Wangers! Everybody loves our Wangers! Uh, Neighbours is not his only telly theme, of course. Is, uh, is, Is Paul McCartney still in the building? Let's not go down that rabbit hole. One more. Sometimes a listener or reader or viewer puts it far better than I do. And such is the case with Matthew McWilliams, who writes my interview with Donald Trump Jr. and his father's uh, alleged difficulties with the Pentagon general staff. Uh, Says, Matthew... It's funny the metamorphosis that has happened in the course of three presidencies. Under George W. Bush, foreign wars were completely unacceptable. Under Barack Obama, they became acceptable. Under Donald Trump, they are now mandatory. (laughs) That's brilliantly put, Matthew, brilliantly. Uh, For years, the left dreamed of a president who'd stand up to the military-industrial complex and the generals and the CIA and all the rest. Now they've got one, it's apparently totally inappropriate ever to question anything those geniuses say. Mark Stein's Last Call. Bill Purcell was a composer, but his biggest hit came with another man's composition, uh, a Canadian songwriter, actually, Johnny Cowell. But it took Bill to make it a smash from 1963, Our Winter Love. in Canada, number 12 in Australia, and number 9 in America. Bill Purcell with Our Winter Love. Lightning never quite struck again as far as the hit parade was concerned, but Bill became an in-demand session pianist for all kinds of people. Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, Willie Nelson, Joan Baez, Dan Fogelberg. Here is one of Bill Purcell's last arrangements of a very well-known song for his daughter, Laura. And I've never, I'd never sung it before. And we didn't know what to do with it. And so Dad sat down in his studio and he was just, hey, this is the one you really were kind of struggling with to try to figure out a, a way to, to, to come up with something different. But well, you tell him. it's I'll Be Seeing You is usually a goodbye song. And um, Liberace used you know, to end off his program with. And I sort of felt... <clears throat> Why not put it into another kind of a, a classification of a person who's 
sitting who's lost somebody, and um, and so in in effect mentally we'll be seeing you. You know whatever. Well, he put a, an incredible string arrangement behind this tune, um, and it, it'll. I, I think you're gonna love it. Let's just let's just start it. it speaks for itself. person who's lost somebody and will be seeing you in all the old familiar places. A lot of that around these last few months and now for Laura Purcell too, who announced a few days ago that her father and pianist and arranger had succumbed to COVID-19 at Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 94, Bill Purcell. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places that this heart of mine embraces all day through. Park across the way The children's carousel The chestnut tree The wishing well I'll be seeing you Laura Purcell accompanied by her father Bill do you know what Muffrey's Law is? No, not Murphy's Law. Muffrey's Law. Muffrey's Law is an adage that states that when a person criticises another's editing or proofreading, there will be a mistake of a similar kind in that criticism. The name is a deliberate misspelling of Murphy's Law. Funny. The man who came up with that coinage was John Bangsand of the Victorian Society of Editors in Australia. But that wasn't what Mr. Bangsand was best known for. He was the founder of the Australian Science Fiction Review, which is what they call a fanzine, because that's what John Bangsand was, a fan, one of the most famous science fiction fans in Australia in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And he became quite a powerful fan whose influence peaked when he got to host the Hugo Awards the most prestigious prize for science fiction writing in 1975. It's a proud and lonely thing to be a fan. Well, I'm just looking round here and I don't feel awful lonely. But by God, I'm proud. <laughs> um... For the two people in the audience who've forgotten my name, uh, my name is John Bankson, and uh, I, I'm your spokesperson tonight. Uh, your toast person. Um, I called myself toast person instead of um, toast master because I feel that there's something rather ridiculous about this business of differentiating between sexes in the titles of, um, you know. Right. I have no trouble differentiating between the sexes, so why should you? No, really, what I want to 
to say about that is that um, I call myself a toast person because, um, first of all, I'm not making any toasts. Uh, and secondly, because I want to make a point about, um, about language. It seems so utterly absurd that we get to this point where we're talking about chairperson. This has got nothing to do with the liberation of the sexes. It's got nothing to do with the liberation of women. This is something that's mucking about with language. Man is all of us. Now, we just happen to be the male half, you know, as represented by me at the present time. We're all men. We belong to the race of men. That's a man who loves the language and was ahead of the game on some of these trends. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 81, John Bankson. I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. University of Pennsylvania is a somewhat confusing name for an institution of higher education, at least for those of us who are not Pennsylvanian, and perhaps especially confusing if you happen to be Californian. But it is located in the municipality of California, Pennsylvania, a town of about 6,000 in the greater Pittsburgh area. And it has a football team. California's defense now in the spotlight as Lenny Williams gets into the end zone second rushing touchdown for the Crimson Hawks and California is down now 13 to nothing pending this extra point the defensive lineman Jermaine Stevens had a more illustrious lineage than many on the team Jermaine Stevens had just started his senior year at Cal U his father Jermaine senior was the Steelers first round draft pick in 1996 Jermaine Jr. played 32 games for the Vulcans. He was a business administration major and a very popular student. A 20-year-old football player at California University of Pennsylvania has died from COVID-19 complications. Jermaine Stevens Jr. would have been a senior this year. And as Fox 43's Amy Lutz shows us, the death of the six foot three, 355 pound defensive tackle comes as more doctors are focusing on weight and how it could play a very serious role in how the virus affects people. A great sporting career in the years ahead? Well, we shall never know. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus, three weeks before his 21st birthday, Jermaine Stevens. We honour the dead of COVID-19 because every one of these deaths is the responsibility of a malignant and duplicitous foreign government. That's to say the Chinese Politburo. And no great power can remain a great power if it lets hostile regimes kill its citizens with impunity, whether those citizens are 28 years old or 108 years old. Thus, there will have to be a reckoning with China, and all these deaths will be laid at the door of Chairman Xi. 
so that those we have mourned these last six months shall not have died in vain. I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day In everything that's light and gay I'll always think of you that way I'll find you in the morning sun And when the night is new I'll be looking at the moon But I'll be seeing you That will do it for today's show. I will see you on the telly with Tucker tonight, Thursday, and back here on Friday at 4pm North American Eastern Time. That's 8pm Greenwich Mean Time. You'll have to work it out from there for our Clubland Q&A live around the planet. I'll be answering questions uh, from Stein Club members for the full hour, and I look forward to a rollicking range of questions. Uh, that will be Friday, 4 p.m. North American Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.